Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Talk Radio Breakfast with Mike Graham. In for Julia Hartley Brewer and The Times. Know your times. Good morning. It's Friday the 21st of February. You're listening to Breakfast with me, Mike Graham, standing in for Julia Hartley Brewer right here on Talk Radio. Not only on Talk Radio, but now live streaming on YouTube, on Facebook and on Twitter as well. So do get onto it. Uh, do like us. Do subscribe to us and you will get all sorts of information about the other TV shows that we're doing here at Talk Radio. Uh, we've got Plank of the Week coming up. Uh, it comes out every Tuesday. We've also got Off Air, uh, which is me in conversation this week with Christopher Snowden from the Institute of Economic Affairs, talking about the BBC licence fee, talking about why we we are where we are uh, in society why we've got this ridiculous blame culture and all of that today the government will pass plans to phase out the sale of coal and wet wood for domestic burning and encourage the use of clean fuels in the home is this really a good idea or is it really even something that needs to be done uh, are they just pandering to the eco planks we'll find out uh, with the environment minister rebecca powell coming up next also the number of criminals being sentenced by the courts has dropped to its lowest level in a decade with just six percent being sent straight to jail and cases of food poisoning have gone up as a result of more of us eating takeaway food. Plus, I'll tell you about Britain's best and worst railway stations. You can, of course, nominate your own uh, if you wish, but I don't really want the best ones. I only want the worst ones. You know, the ones that literally have nothing going on at all. You know, one bench with about four pieces of wood missing, perhaps. You know, no ticket office, nobody actually ever working there. Trains that don't even stop there, uh, for heaven's sake. I'll tell you a story about Holly Willoughby uh, coming up in this hour uh, and her own private plane and train service that she made manages to organise. Uh, we're also in the company right here of Dave Chawner and John Ashmore. Uh, you're listening to Talk Radio. It's six minutes past eight. Uh, and of course, I'm Mike Graham. Talk Radio Breakfast with Mike Graham. In for Julia Hartley Brewer and The Times. Be well informed. Now, you would think it was quite a slow news day if every single newspaper was uh, splashing, as we used to say in the news uh, business, with coal fires banned in fight to cut emissions on the front of the Telegraph. Front of the eye paper, crackdown on wood burners to cut UK air pollution. It tells you just how much uh, the economy and the environment are mixed together. We've got a budget coming up in the next month or so. Uh, we now know uh, that uh, Boris Johnson's government is trying to be as green as possible. The Times has got banned on the most polluting household fires. Let's talk now uh, to Rebecca Powell, the environment minister uh, and find out what is behind this particular policy uh, and whether it's actually going to make any difference. Rebecca, a very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Very good morning. Thanks uh, very well, much. I hope it will make a difference. <laughs> well, well, obviously you would hope that, but one of the questions I've been asked on Twitter this morning, uh, and I'm a keen user of a wood-burning stove, so I'm, I'm actually quite keen to know the answer to this. What exactly is the definition of wet wood? Yes, yeah, so that's an interesting question. Well, it's wood that's over 20% moisture, 
uh, because interestingly, uh, one kilogram log uh, of wood could contain a pint of water. That shows how much water you know wood can actually contain. And if you've ever uh, burnt wood that's not quite dry enough, you probably will have noticed just how much smoke it gives off. Gives off a horrible smoke. So we're recommending that people burn cleaner fuel. The, the whole point of this is not to ban uh, lovely log burners. I've got one myself or open fires. The idea is to move people on to burning cleaner fuel that doesn't give off this. And the reason behind that is the smoke itself, uh, domestic, the smoke from domestic burning, you know, that comes out of our chimneys, uh, is the single largest contributor to something called fine particulate matter. It's a teeny weeny uh, pollutant in the air, but there are ghastly cocktail of things like mercury, um, arsenic, carbon monoxide, lead. That's going into the air. So the, the purpose behind this measure is obviously to reduce the amount of that pollutant because we have clear data uh, from the health uh, industry that that is majorly contributing to a nasty raft of diseases, cardiovascular disease, stroke, asthma and cancer, which are costing the health service uh, upwards of 7.5 sure. billion pounds. So, so that's the thinking behind this and we've been we've had all of the um, health health industry calling on us to do this so they're absolutely behind this measure. But will there be a sort of industry standard as to what uh, d d is designated as wet wood? Because, for example, I mean, you know, I will buy wood from, from um, generally speaking, one or two sources where, where I live, which will be, generally speaking, pretty dry. Um, if you happen to go somewhere different, you might get a wood uh, which, which hisses a little bit, for example, and maybe actually, you know, produces a little bit of sap when you burn it, but it doesn't necessarily give off a terrible smoke. So who's going to actually decide who uh, is, a, is, is selling the wrong kind of wood? Yeah, well, we've been working very, very closely with the industry and with coal merchants themselves and with, in fact, chimney sweeps. Uh, they are um, going to help give the guidance and the advice that we'll be providing uh, so that people know what they can buy. But also there will be a certified standard and then there'll be logo, uh, logos and labelling attached so that you will know. So you, so you popped off on the way home to the garage to buy some logs in one of those nets. Uh, that should have the clear label on that it's certified as the right uh, dryness of wood. So okay. There's a whole system in place to make that work, plus a whole guidance and education campaign for the public, uh, just teaching about burning better. In fact, quite interestingly, um, there's also better methods of, uh, if you do have a log burner or indeed an open fire, better methods of actually laying your fire that, so that you would actually not give off the smoke if there was any smoke anyway so that you can give off much less smoke and have a much cleaner, more efficient burn. Yeah. Uh, so but is it, I mean, is this really the business of government? I mean, with, with all due respect, Rebecca, I mean, you know, we've got a lot of problems in this country. We've got people being stabbed to death on the streets of this country. Uh, we're getting people kind of robbed. We're getting police uh, who can't find the time to actually bother to come around to people's houses when they get burgled. I mean, is this really the business of government? Well, it is if you think that it's the business of government to run the health service and that it's taxpayers' money that goes into running a health service. And the World Health Organization... I'm not, no, I'm not letting you get away with that. You might as well say you might as well stop, stop everyone from smoking and stop everyone from drinking, well, stop everyone from walking about because well, well, they fall over. 
Well, we have done an awful lot uh, in respect to smoking. It's the same argument. And similarly... Well, you haven't banned it, though, have you? The the WA, we're not banning. We're not banning log burners, are we? We're not banning any of it. What we're doing is just uh, introducing cleaner fuels and these manufactured solid fuels will will be able to be used with the correct advice to keep people much healthier. Uh, But the other thing is the WHO, the World Health Organization, is actually their guidance, which we're following... Uh, it's a mass international concern to them. Uh, the smoke, these fine particulates in air, and air pollution is one of our single biggest issues that we are... Well, there's a lot of air pollution going on around the world, but I just don't think... I mean, whatever happened to the Conservative Party? I mean, the Conservative Party is supposed to be about free marketeering, isn't it? It's not supposed to be about a nanny state. I don't, I don't think this has got anything to do with a nanny state. This is about... You're telling people not to burn wood. Well, no, nobody's telling them not to burn wood. In fact... You know, please carry on burning wood. It just needs to be dry wood. It ah. makes perfect sense on right. the ground. It's when nobody's banning it at all. Uh, everyone is still going to be able to sit around their log burner, as I do myself with my family. But it's just about drying uh, using a cleaner fuel, either drier wood or these manufactured solid fuels, which, you know, there are plenty on the market and more coming on the screen. But they'll all be certified to make sure they don't give off this very, very damaging smoke. Yes. There are, of course, some people in parts of this country at the moment who've only got not only wet wood, but wet furniture, wet floors, wet clothes uh, and wet kitchens on the basis that their houses have been flooded, despite the fact that the government's been promising for years to bring in some more flood defences. Some people might think that's a bit more important. Well, clearly, uh, flooding is a, is a huge issue. I've been out myself all over the place uh, visiting people and looking at the defences. And this government is absolutely committed to flood defences. In fact, we've given more money than ever before to flood defence work. 2.6 billion since 2015, running up to 2021. And with that, we have already put in place another 600 flood defences. Different types and models all over the country. Many more are coming on screen. There'll be 1,000 by 2021. And in a manifesto, we've committed a further 4 billion to flood defence work. But that's not to say there isn't more to do, because as you know, we are we are experiencing these extreme weather events. And uh, so no matter how much work you do, you can't necessarily account for those. But what we're doing right now, the imminent pressure is to look after those people. Yes. Um, are you confident that they're all getting the compensation that they've been promised? Because some people have said that it's been very slow in coming. Well, I've worked incredibly hard myself, as has the DEFRA Department and the Secretary of State for DEFRA and working with communities and local government department in particular to launch a whole package of measures. We launched the Bellwind scheme last week for the emergency cover that local authorities can apply for. But uh, we've also launched a whole raft of other measures, uh, one of which is the £500 um, fund for flood-hit homes and businesses that people can apply for. And most of them are saying what is important right at this moment is that immediate help that the emergency service and the environment agency can give them. That's what they need. And then it will be these other funds that will come into play. Um, so we've also got households and businesses uh, affected from flooding. We'll also be eligible for 100% council tax and business rates relief for at least three months. There's a whole raft of measures, as well as the £500 financial hardship fund. Uh, so altogether, it's, it's a whole mix of that will be available for people. And the ones I've spoken to are, are very pleased about that. I've rung around lots of the MPs in the, in the flooded areas yesterday who are all very pleased that 
Well, there's one Tory MP up in Yorkshire who's very displeased about the fact that the payments have been very slow in coming. Um, I don't know whether that's been fixed yet. But let me ask you one uh, final question, Rebecca. Have you seen Boris recently? Well, I, I regularly feed into Boris because he sent me out as the floods minister, uh, to, particularly to the Midlands where I was in Bugley in Worcester, and I was reporting immediately back uh, into his office and into the system. He's got a whole system operating in terms of the... Uh, what happens, uh, what brings into operation when there's any flood alert. Uh, and that's been operating extremely well with all of the environment agency centres up and running, all the local forums. So there's a whole network, and it feeds directly back to government, uh, directly back to Boris, who's completely okay with exactly what's going on. Don't you think you should say something about it, though? He hasn't said anything at all about the floods. Well, he had a, he, I believe he was in Yorkshire, I was told, on um, Sunday. But, but the Secretary of State for Death has been out, I've been out. We're all constantly feeding back to him. Uh, yeah, but he hasn't spoken about it. Well, but he has spoken to all of the people involved in this big team effort, this big... Net. I think people sort of forget that we're, we're a cabinet government, so we're given responsibilities, and, and we all go out and do them. We all have leads in our own departments. We have regular um, conference calls. I had one yesterday with all the other departments, all about these funds we've just talked about, and, and whether they're the right funds, you know, when people can access them, what they need. You know, so it, it, I, I think it's an extremely effective system that we're putting into operation. OK. Rebecca, thanks very much indeed. The sooner you get Huawei involved with your internal phone mechanisms, by the way, the better, because uh, that's the worst line I think I've ever heard. But never mind. Uh, that's not your fault, necessarily. Uh, we will have more conversations about this wood-burning scenario, because it seems to me uh, that there are a lot more things that the government could be doing, uh, rather than telling us what kind of wood to burn. Don't you think? Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, Talk Radio. Let's talk about the criminal fraternity, because it turns out now... Amongst the other problems that this government has got, uh, there's not enough um, prosecutions going on. Uh, there are not enough uh, uh, criminals literally being sentenced. Apparently, only 6% of criminals now are sent straight to jail. Um, the court sentencing uh, structure has dropped to its lowest level in a decade. Yeah, if you don't mind me saying so, I find your use of language quite interesting. Do you? When you, when you, when you introduce the topic by saying not enough criminals being sent to jail, that, mm. that raises the time-honoured question of whether we send too many criminals to jail in this country. I mean, there's been a lot of argument over the years to the effect that we should be reducing prison numbers. And now, when it's happening, people are complaining that not enough people are going to jail. Well, when you say uh, we're sentencing too many criminals to jail, that depends upon who you talk to, really. I mean, there are lots of bodies in this country who think that jail is not the place for criminals to be sent to. Uh, I'm yep. not one of them. Well, the thing is, Mike, it's, you know, it's a very, very, very big topic. It depends, you know, the term criminals encompasses a, a huge range of individuals. I mean, our prisons tend to uh, encompass the most, you know, dangerous people in the country who should definitely be in prison. Yeah. And also a, a vast proportion of mentally ill and psychologically impaired offenders who ought not to be in prison. So it's an incredibly complex topic. Of course it is, yeah. But sadly, because we are in the radio business, we can't be that deep about how complex we get. What I can say uh, is that if 109,000 offenders, including people who have committed sex attacks, robberies, and drug offences and other violent offences who are not being sent to jail because they're being allowed to apologise to their victims, I think there's something wrong, isn't there? 
Well, I mean, I, you know, again, I just can't answer that question yes or no. I mean, ju- judging by the article in the Daily Mail and, and the coverage in the Times, I mean, there's a whole range of issues here. Firstly, the police seem to be charging less um, offenders. I'm, you know, I hold no brief for the police. I don't know why that is. All I can say is, I mean, I'm at the heart of the criminal justice system. Yeah. I'm, I'm a barrister and a part-time judge. All I can say is that I believe the criminal justice process does its best day in, day out to protect the interests of the public. Judges are not stupid, despite the publicity that they tend to attract. They know what they're doing. And, you know, if left people are going to jail and so on, it's because um, the courts feel that the, centre, the, the, the offences that are coming for the courts don't justify it. So in terms of you as a judge, then, let me ask you, because you're at the, the very heart of this. Yeah. Um, if you are presented with somebody who has committed a violent crime, under what circumstances do you not think they should go to jail? I mean, the, the real question with violent offenders, Mike, is whether the offender is a danger to the public, because, because the range of offending in terms of violent crime is very wide. I mean, it goes from murder down to, you know, someone punching someone else in the heat of a moment because there's a bit of a row over a parking space or yeah. something. So for me and for most judges, the question is, you know, is this person dangerous? If, that, if the individual is dangerous, judges will send those people to jail. Uh, you know, that's how it is. Yeah, listen, I'm not having a go at judges here. I'm certainly not having a go at anybody who is working within the system. What I do know, yeah. and which you will be able to confirm, I'm sure, is that the courts in this country are overwhelmed. Uh, they are not enable, enabled to, to deal with the number of cases before them. There is an incredible backlog of cases which do not even get seen uh, within a reasonable time. And there is not enough capacity, if you like, in the system to deal with this properly. No, no on all of those points, you're absolutely right. I mean... You know, it takes, I mean, it can take a year for a pretty low-level assault case to come before the court. That, I mean, and one of the reasons, Mike, why in, a, in some violent cases people don't go to prison is because it takes so long for the case to come to court that the judge takes the view that the offence took place 14 months ago and, you know, the person has not done anything wrong since. So it's unfair for that individual to be deprived of their liberty so long afterwards. So you're absolutely right. Resources overcrowding, overloading are real problems in the justice system. And presumably that must then feed into your decision-making process, rightly or wrongly, and, and, and maybe you know, unconsciously or consciously. If you know that there's a lack of space in jail, you are probably going to be more likely to think about not sending somebody there because that will increase the, the problem. Well, put slightly differently, it's not so, from, from my perspective, it's not so much being worried about that there being no space. It's more being concerned about inhumane conditions and for someone who is on the borderline of going to prison you know my view would be not to send them to prison if they're going to be shoved into a cell which ought to house two people when in fact it's going to house four yeah That's inhumane. so you're making a judgment based upon your belief in humanity rather than your belief in justice and punishment well yeah you, 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 you have to well no mike because you have to balance all these considerations you know, yeah, but the people of this country would say, I don't believe you should balance those considerations. I believe that you should put people away if they deserve to be put away for the offence that they've committed, rather than yes. deciding uh, in one sort of fell swoop whether it's not a good idea because there might not be room for them. No, but you don't do it in one fell swoop. You, you have to, a judge, like you, you know, when you're conducting an interview, has to balance various considerations. You know, what are the right questions to ask, how to you know, moderate your tone and so on. Exactly the same for us. We have to balance competing considerations and come down, 
you know, one side or the other. It's not. It's not easy. No, I'm, I'm sure it's not. And I'm, and, I, and you're actually, in many ways, at the unfortunately rough end of the stick because by the time you get exactly. these people, um, they've already been through a system uh, which has probably not served them particularly well. I mean, I'm looking, for example, at this example of a guy called Ben Matthews, 18 years of age, savagely beaten by a stranger in an unprovoked street assault. He assumed his attacker would be prosecuted. Instead, uh, he was asked to come to a police station where he was put face to face with his attacker. Um, and was asked if he would forgive him if he said sorry. Well, no, that one looks like a ridiculous one to me. Obviously, I don't know because I wasn't involved. Right. But, um, but that's, I mean, if that's happening and that's one instance, it won't be just the one instance. It will be happening in other cases. No, it is happening. But also, you have to bear in mind that, you know, we have a, the highest prison population in, in the free world. So, so there are plenty of people being sent to prison in this country. The problem, as you've said, and you've identified issues very clearly is that resources you know are very low and the system is overloaded so it's a very very complex situation well as a man who knows a lot about this system how would you change it if you were able to and if you were able to talk to boris johnson right now via this radio station what would you say to him well to be honest with you mike for me the biggest problem of all is that our prisons are jam-packed with people who shouldn't be there the most dangerous offenders in the country should definitely be sent to prison the problem is that too many people who aren't qualified for prison, as I've said, you know, a third of our prison population is mentally ordered offenders and so on. If you get rid of those, if we have proper resources for people who shouldn't be in prison, then the prisons will have more space for the people who should be in prison. That's, for me, that's the primary issue. Do we need more prisons? Well, we, we don't need more prisons. We need to send the right people to prison and stop sending the wrong, prison, the wrong people inside. Online, on DAB, and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Conservative MP for North West Leicestershire. Andrew, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Now, I hope you've put down your wet wood and your coal-fired uh, power station house. 
uh, as it were, because this seems to be what the government cares about. Uh, Donald Trump's a bit worried about Huawei still, says that, uh, you know, he's concerned that we're letting this Chinese communications company uh, in through the back door. It's a done deal, isn't it? Well, I've joined a group of conservative backbenchers who are lobbying uh, the Prime Minister in number 10 to uh, eliminate Huawei from the 5G uh, upgrade. Um, I think we've underestimated how much uh, concern there is um, over in the United States mm. of America and the other members of our Five Eyes intelligence organisation. And as I've said to number 10 and to colleagues, you know, it doesn't really matter how cheap... Um, the uh, Huawei offering is of, of their technology, you know, and effectively, Mike, you know, they're, they're offering it as interest-free credit, uh, which is almost too good to be true for their technology. If if the cost of that is that we lose access to vital security information through our relationship with the Five Eyes, it's a price too high to pay. And it's okay, Number Ten, briefing MPs and saying we can manage the risk. If our allies um, in the Five Eyes, America, Canada, New Zealand, Australia don't believe that we can manage the risk, whether we can or not, that's going to affect the information we get through the security sharing services, and we can't afford that. Is it not better, though, to have them kind of inside the tent, as it were, knowing what they're doing, rather than having them not part of the communications network <clears throat> that we have here and, and finding out that they've been sort of listening in anyway? Well, if, if, if uh, the, they use their technology to, to listen in, and it compromises our security. Um, can you imagine the uh, the costs of taking that technology back out if, if it were possible to do that? And I think there's also a wider implication here that let's get on to the Brexit issue. We're, we're going to be negotiating with the European Union a, a free trade agreement. And one of the best guarantees that we'll get a good deal out of the European Union is having parallel talks with our, our greatest ally, the United States of mm. America, on a free trade deal with them. Now, if... Uh, Huawei's involvement uh, in our 5G network compromises uh, the Americans' willingness to do that free trade deal with us. That would seriously undermine our negotiating position to get a good deal out of the European Union as well. And again, that's a price that's far too high to mm. pay. I mean, it looks as though <clears throat> the Trump administration, while they may not be that happy about the Huawei deal, they haven't cut us off without any kind of consideration. It's, apparently, it seems to be the case that Donald Trump and Boris Johnson had a conversation last night, uh, which I presume from, from reading about it this morning was not entirely, you know, um, sort of adversarial, if you like. Absolutely. Well, it's not going to be. But, I mean, I come back to my point. Boris Johnson and Number 10 have told... Conservative backbench MPs that they can manage the Huawei risk, but it doesn't matter really whether they can or whether they can't. If they can't persuade the, our allies, the Americans and the other members of the Five Eyes, that we can manage the risk uh, and we lose access to vital security information, it's not something we can press ahead with. Mm. And, I mean, how far down the road have we gone with this? Because, like I say, my understanding is it's sort of more or less a done deal, but the government have said we're not going to let them into every single aspect of, of our communications. They're only going to be involved in, in sort of, you know, things which do not involve, um, you know, state secrets and state security. Um, are, you, are you one of those who would rather they weren't involved at all? I think we need to diminish. Uh, the Prime Minister said they want um, no more than 35% of non-core um, infrastructure. Mm. Um, however, I think you know, there's going to be an amount of time between now and when this uh, 5G rollout actually occurs. And I think we should be working on, on getting it down much less than that. 
But ultimately, if, if it is going to affect uh, our relationship for important security matters with our allies, we need to go with one of the other alternatives. They may be more expensive, but ultimately, uh, you know, the security of our country and uh, on our alliances uh, trumps everything. Yes, and I suppose the bottom line here as well, Andrew, is, is how quickly um, and how efficiently are we going to be able to move to this so-called 5G system? Because, I mean, I'm still sitting at home occasionally at about 7 o'clock at night when the bandwidth isn't particularly good, you know, waiting for the old clock to go round and round and round, just waiting to watch Netflix. Or I'm going to Dorset, where you can't even get a mobile phone signal, never mind uh, actually in download some data and actually get on Twitter. Indeed. I mean, in, in rural uh, northwest Leicestershire, uh, it, it, there's not a lot of quality out here of bandwidth. I think I, I wanted to back up my iPhone to the cloud, and it, uh, it said at home in Leicestershire it was, uh, it was 26 hours. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, it's a joke, in, in isn't my, it? When I went down to Westminster, it, it did it in 15 minutes. Right. So I think there's a, there's a certain disparity around the country uh, of, the, uh, of the quality of the service. And we need to we need to level that up. Yes, and certainly one of the things that people have said about voting for Boris Johnson in the north of England is that they need to actually update an awful lot of the technology that is available to people outside of London. Absolutely, and uh, I think that's um, one way that we could say if, if we perhaps were to reallocate uh, the money from HS2 to uh, superfast broadband uh, across the country, that, that might reduce the need for uh, uh, so much travelling... Uh, and also um, create equal opportunities across our country. Absolutely right. Andrew, thanks very much indeed. And thanks for talking to us. Andrew Bridging, Conservative MP for North West Leicestershire. Online, on DAB and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. So I'm now joined by Dr. Rakiba San, a research fellow from the Henry Jackson Society, a regular guest on my show, uh, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Rakib, very good morning to you. Welcome. Morning, Mike. How are been, you? Uh, yeah, very well indeed. I've, I've, this is my final day getting up at 5am. Uh, I have to Are say you've been that, coping uh, with those early starts. I've, been, I've been coping all right, actually, but I've been going to bed very early uh, just to make sure that I don't sort of wake well, you're up. You're a regimented man, aren't you? Well I, can, well, I can now do that. You know, I'm now old. I'm old enough to know better than to stay out too late. But it's been an interesting week, one way and another. It's been a eventful um, one. We had Pretty Patel on this show a couple of days ago talking about her new immigration points plan, which has sort of upset people and pleased people in equal measure, hasn't it? Because some people think, you know, it's about time that suddenly somebody got to grips with the immigration problem in this country, which is basically that anybody who wants to come in can come in. What's your reaction to it? Well, I think the immigration reforms that she's announced this week, I think they're a step in the right direction. I think, needless to say, you know, there were going to be negative reactions yeah. to these two sweeping reforms to immigration. It right. is a sensitive issue for, say, for example, on both sides of the Brexit debate, Leavers and Remainers, they both have passionate mm. opinions on the issue of immigration. But the reality of the matter is, Mike, we voted to leave the European Union. Then we had a 2017 general election where the two major parties, they explicitly articulated pro-Brexit positions yeah. in their manifestos, and they both did quite well. Mm. You know, their combined, uh, combined, uh, combined share of the vote was over 80%. Yes. And then we saw in the most recent general election when Labour deviated from that pro-Brexit position and entertained the possibility of holding a second referendum on uh, EU membership. Mm. But then the Conservatives adopted this uh, central get Brexit done message. Yeah. The Tories win their largest parliamentary majority since 1987. Labour, in terms of seats, crashed to their worst general 
general election performance since 1935. Yeah. So there's a matter of democratic health here, yes. as in a day. There has and I, think, I suppose support. what you're saying, reading between the lines there, is that the people who said in 2017 that they still thought Labour would get the job done as far as leaving the EU was concerned, by 2019 they worked out, actually, Labour aren't going to get that done. Well, they felt they, let, da they felt let yeah. down, particularly traditional Labour voters in former uh, industrial and coastal, and coastal areas who were generally those areas were mm. pro-Brexit. Right. They were very disappointed with Labour deviating from that pro-Brexit position that they articulated back in 2017. And as we know, the party paid the price. But I think more generally, the British public, they do want restrictions on the amount of... How would you how would you call it low cost migrant labour coming into the yes. United Kingdom? Well, this they, is what's interesting because some of the opposition to what Pretty Patel is proposing is not coming from perhaps the places you might expect it to be coming from, i.e., you know, the left who are saying, well, we'd like to see more immigration. It's actually coming from business. Business mm. is saying, you know, we can't afford to run our businesses if we are forced to put up our wages in order to include uh, and employ, you know, British nationals. Well, I think that business made the same sort of arguments when we, we um, when the new Labour government introduced the minimum wage. Yeah. They said that, you know, small to medium-sized businesses, they would not be able to cope with such a rise. Right. I mean, I haven't got a lot of sympathy, to be honest, with businesses who no. don't pay people enough money. No, One of the absolutely. things I think is entirely wrong about the way that we structure our economy is the, is the tax credit system, which seems to me to be entirely counterintuitive. You know, the fact that we as taxpayers bankroll businesses to make money because they can't be bothered paying people more uh, than they do. Mike, when it comes to the immigration system, it should ultimately be designed and cultivate support amongst the wider British public. It yes. should not just be there to serve corporate interests. Right, exactly. And Michael Portillo, funnily enough, on Question Time last night said, you know, I don't think we should be proud of an immigration system that encourages low pay for people coming to this country from elsewhere. And I, I think he's absolutely right. That's not what we should be doing. I think what we should be doing, I think the positive thing about the reforms is that it is looking to restrict the in inflow of cheap, what, what, what you could consider to be cheap labour. Mm. Now, what we should also be doing is that we, we need to invest more. There needs to be more public investment when it comes to, say, NHS bursaries. To yes. Essentially investing and boosting the skills of our own domestic pool. Mm. Now, the government has been quite reluctant to do that in recent times, largely because they've been too focused on, oh, what is, you know, what are corporate interests telling us and all the rest right. of it. Ultimately, the job of the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, is to boost public confidence in the way immigration is being controlled and yes. managed. And more broadly with the government, they should be investing more in, say, vocational colleges mm. and trying to boost skills of our young domestic pool. That and obviously be their what we've got, as you know better than anybody, because you study, um, you know, the communities of this country and, and how they are mixed and how they are kind of constituted, if you like. And there are many communities in this country which have not been affected by immigration at all. Mm. And yet, at the same time, several communities which have been very largely affected by immigration and and I wonder whether the people who are um, perhaps more affected by immigration are more concerned about the way that their community has changed well, more than more than um, and not necessarily by people coming in but by people who came to this country a long time ago and who are now sort of second and third generation absolutely I think one of the big arguments that came through in brexit was you know, the higher than, higher than expected uh, level of leave support amongst British Indians. Yeah. Now, they were making the point that the way, um, the way the British immigration system is structured, being attached to the EU freedom of movement principle, essentially 
EU migrants were beneficiaries of preferential treatment. Yes. So surely a fair immigration system applies across the board, a rigorous assessment yeah. system for people irrespective of their continent of origin. Sure. I was interested actually in the figures that have been revealed recently that more than 2 million EU citizens who came to this country to work have actually asked for the right to remain here and who have gone for oh, settled status. this is a really racist country though, Mike. Well, exactly. I mean, oh. we were told, of course, by the Remainers, you know, oh. we're going to lose all of this great talent, you know, mm. we're never going to be able to go into a coffee shop anymore and mm. find somebody from, you know... Yeah, former... their forecasts don't tend to be very accurate. Do I don't they? think they've got one thing right, have they? No. I mean, not one. Literally, you know, the, the ports are fine. I mean, we're now getting more threats coming from the coronavirus and, and the sort of stagnation of the Chinese economy than anything that Brexit could have ever afforded and suddenly we're being told oh yeah but we get all this stuff from china before brexit we were told we get everything from europe well i guess we don't well i think the reality of the matter is uh, generally from the remain side mm. of the argument there has been you know forecasts of economic post-brexit economic armageddon yes where the reality of the matter is it almost comes across that's exactly what they're wishing for they which want, is really sad, isn't it? Which is it? really sad. I think it's, it's, it's very anti-British yeah. attitude. What do you make of the Labour Party as it is now trying to reconstitute itself? We're going to be talking about Tony Blair later on. He oh, made a speech yesterday. Why even start with the, the Labour well, Party? Well, listen, I saw that you were tweeting at Rebecca Long-Bailey who said that the government's oh, counter... Oh, Daily, yeah. Uh, the, the counter-terrorist strategy is clearly failing. The Prevent programme has alienated the Muslim community. Um, you made the point that there's no such thing as the there's Muslim no community. Such thing. Well, why is she saying that? There's yeah. no such thing as a British Muslim mm. community. That's, Certainly a, they that's do. an imaginary construct. Yeah. The, Mus the Muslim community does not vote as one, does it? Well, there's high level of Labour support, but then you, but, but we shouldn't ignore the fact that there is a diversity of public mm. attitudes and social views within the broader British Muslim population. Yes. And the reality of the matter is within the British Muslim population... The, there are sectarian tensions, yeah. which also exist. Right. So the idea that it's some sort of um, uniform, monolithic yeah, block... amorphous mass. ...is absolute right. nonsense. But what about, as well, the desperation that they seem to be facing within themselves? Now, three people, Rebecca Long-Bailey, Keir Starmer um, and Lisa Nandy, um, all of whom are standing there when they're asked the question, who's the greatest Labour leader in the last 50 years? Apart from the fact that Rebecca Longbelly couldn't count to 50 and named yeah. uh, Clement Attlee, who, who died more than 50 years ago, yeah. <laughs> not one of them has even got the cojones to say, look, we should probably look at Tony Blair, but we can't name him as the great leader because he did this terrible thing in Iraq. Instead of doing that, they kind of pretend that he didn't exist, which is mad. Listen, I think that it's perfectly reasonable for people to be of the view that the military intervention yeah. in Iraq was not particularly wise. Right. But then just to completely ignore every single every thing... Every other thing that he that, did. Who, who, a man who was incredibly successful in an electoral sense, mm. uh, he ended Labour in opposition for a considerable period of time before the 1997 yeah. electoral landslide. I just think to have the attitude that we will listen to absolutely nothing he says, mm. I think that he, he said that Le Labour should be cautious about becoming a trans uh, pressure group. Yes. And I think that's a really good point. That is a really good point, the, 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 the discussions which are dominating within the Labour mm. Party, many, many ordinary British folk, they're simply not interested yeah. in it. And they also, but they think the idea, for example, that a male rapist can then identify as a woman yeah. and on the base of that can be placed in a female-only prison, they'll find that absolutely bonkers. I but know. then Lisa Fernandez was saying that, you know, it's, it, it, it may well be acceptable. Across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. Talk Radio.
Let's talk to Nigel Harris, uh, because he's a man that will tell us about some things that we would prefer to know about, really. Um, good and bad railway stations, because uh, uh, we've now got a list, and apparently uh, St Pancras is the best. Nigel, very good morning to you. Morning to you, Mike. Now, everybody travels by train at some point in their lives. You know, fewer people, perhaps, than uh, than you might expect, because when the Labour Party said in their last manifesto that, you know, they'd give loads of people money off their rail fares, a lot of people said, well, hang on, we don't travel by rail. But uh, but this is a great list. I mean, everybody likes a, a sort of best and worst, don't they? Absolutely, whether it's restaurants or beer or wine. <laughs> so, um, what's the measurement, first of all, of, all of, of how you measure a great railway station and a terrible one? Well, to me, it's, is it easy to use? Uh, are the facilities good? Can you find your way to the platform that you want yes. easily? And are there people around who can point you in the right direction if you get a bit bamboozled by it all? Yeah, um, interesting that, because when St Pancras was, was named as the finest, I've always said about St Pancras, it's a fantastic, uh, beautiful-looking railway station, but first of all, you wouldn't necessarily know it was a railway station, and two, I couldn't, when I was there, I was trying to get to, uh, I think I was trying to get to Luton Airport or something, and I couldn't find the ticket office. It is a big, and there is that problem, and one of the, I was just about to say, I'm just looking at the... Uh, the story online about St Pancras being the best in Europe, and let's 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 give a bit of a cheer that we're beating the rest in Europe on us on, yes, any, on anything. You absolutely. Know. But stations were scored on factors including the quality of signs and the number of shops and restaurants, <laughs> which I'm not I'm not sure is the best sort of criteria. No. But look, St Pancras is wonderful. But you know, the key point there is it was dismal before they closed it in the 90s when it was a, a British rail station. Yeah. Um, and but you know they spent eight hundred million pounds on it. It's a Grade One listed structure. When it was built, it was the biggest enclosed space on the planet. Mm. And there are seven, I think, railways if you include the tubes converge yes. there. So it needs to be good, and it is. But yes, you're right. Um, in our National Rail Awards each year, one of the judges always says, you know, finding your way around St Pancras is not easy. So you you are right about that issue. Yes. Now, I have to tell you, right next door to it is a Euston station, which I'd have to say is possibly the most disgusting and disgraceful railway station, I think, in the in the history of railways. Well, I wouldn't necessarily disagree <laughs> with you. Michael, um... Uh, Portillo? No, no, the other Michael, the Monty Python one. Then. Oh, Palin, yeah. Paling, paling, yeah. live radio, and you forget and then don't worry. Um, one's described it as like a big concrete bathtub where people have <laughs> swilled in at one end and swilled out at the other. You've yes. got to remember it was built in the 1960s mm. when there was this obsession with white bread, white sugar, make everything look like an airport. We yeah. don't want anything looking like the past. Um, it kind of functions, but it is it is not pleasant. Uh, I, I, like you, I'm, I'm not a fan. No, I'm absolutely not a fan. And bizarrely, other railway stations in the UK in the rankings, um, which are the good rankings, I'm assuming, uh, is Birmingham New Street. Now, call me old-fashioned again, but Birmingham New Street is hideous, isn't it? it well, it is, and uh, your comment about uh, you made earlier sort of goes with me as well. It is almost impossible to find your way around. I do not think they've got the balance right there between the shopping centre they've created on the top and the access to the station, which is a key purpose of it. You have to go mm. in and out of barriers, and it, it's not great. But, you know, it is a very busy hub. Railway men and women do a good job of getting trains in and out of it, other than when there's, there's sort of some sort of perturbation, be it weather or a breakdown yeah, or yeah. point earlier or whatever. But drawing judgments on sort of worse stations in regard to punctuality and timekeeping, we need to be a bit careful about that. It's like, you know, if, if you're... At, Judging an airline's uh, punctuality at Heathrow, it's yeah. not that the airline can't control it. And it's the same with the, the train operators on the railway. 
you can have breakdowns. We've seen floods over this last few weeks. There's all sorts of things can stop the trains. Sure, the operators sometimes are at fault and need to be have the feet held to the fire. But what it shows if a railway station is showing up as having routinely poor punctuality, it means it's probably got too many trains and not enough infrastructure. Mm. It requires investment. Yes, no doubt. And much of these uh, stations that are listed in, in this particular report are European stations as well. Zurich Central comes in second, Leipzig Central mm. third, Roma uh, fourth, Munich uh, Central Station fifth. Um, I mean, there's a sort of romance, it seems to me, about travelling by train in, in Europe, and you might call me, um, you know, slightly stuck in the past here. But whenever I have travelled by train in Europe, it does seem a bit more kind of glamorous, whereas in Britain it's kind of a bit functional. Well, certainly for long-distance traffic, there's certainly um, a, a, an air of mystique and romance about turning up at one of those stations yeah. for, a, for a, a night train to Prague that's not quite the same as getting the sort of daylight train to Nottingham, is it? <laughs> not really, um, no. I mean, I once took a train from Pisa into Florence... And it was a beautiful train. It was a fantastic service. It was on time. It was clean. Um, it was roomy. Similarly, you know, I've taken trains in from the outskirts of Paris where they have those double-decker trains, which seem very clever to me. I wonder why we can't do that. You know, it just seems as though we're sort of stuck in, in some kind of incredibly expensive experiment where everybody's getting, you know, ripped off. Well, the, just taking your double-deck um, thing first, we, 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 we were pioneers. We invented railways, and pioneers are the ones who end up with arrows in the back, aren't they? Yeah, apparently we invented uh, football as well. That's not going too well, either. <laughs> but we built our railways. This is a bit technical. I'll try and simplify it to, to a, a small loading gauge. And that, if you like, that's the size of the tunnels yes. and the, size, the distance between the track and the platform. The Europeans came along and said, oh, those Brits have invented something really good there. We'll make all our tunnels bigger and the distance bigger between the tracks and the platform so they can produce much bigger trains yeah. on, the sa- on the same rails and we cannot do that because you'd have to rebore every tunnel and rebuild every station in the country which is um which is not not, not no true no i get that possible. but why didn't we think of that in the first place well, you better sort of get your TARDIS and go and talk to George Stevens about that. Um, because... <laughs> well, here's another question. And why are we not doing it for HS2? Because we're building a massive tunnel, I believe, from uh, Old Oak Common all the way up to Birmingham or to, through the Chilterns anyway, because a large part of the HS2 line apparently is going to have to be tunnelled through uh, to avoid upsetting people who have nice houses in that part of the world. Why can't we build a massive tunnel and have a double-decker HS2? I'm delighted to tell you we're doing exactly that. Uh, it, will, it will be built to continental loading gauge, um, which means that if, if to use it to the full, there will be two fleets of trains. There will be one tr- fleet of trains which will be known as captive, right. which can only fit on HS2, and there will be others which will be classic compatible, which can, as in France, they can run off the end of the high-speed network and run onto Glasgow and mm. Edinburgh or anywhere else, which is why all those distant places, contrary to what you read in a lot of the papers, will derive benefit from day one. Okay. But, the tr- but the trains were built to European standards for the um, for HS2. For put it simply, they wouldn't fit through the tunnels. Ah. So they've got to step. But so I'm delighted to say we are doing just that. Well, I'm looking forward to the first time I get to ride on the double decker HS2 train uh, shortly before I die, because it will be what in the 2040, I think, before we see one of those. Well, but before that to Birmingham, and I, I have a suspicion that once we get going, there will be a desire to get it finished much quicker. Right. Um, but I don't think we'll be getting the Chinese to build it in five years. Right. What a pity. Now, I'm going to ask you the question you will be expecting, of course. What's your worst train station you've ever been to? Oh, dear. Um, actually, I can answer that 
In the UK, it was not long ago, I went to a place called Gainsborough Lear Road in Lincolnshire. Oh, yeah. And it had just stuck in the past, and it was appalling. We did some coverage about it in the magazine. We got into, we got work together with the local rail users group, and I'm delighted to tell you that they're finally they're rebuilding it and, you know, bringing it into the 21st century. Excellent. Uh, but that was awful. That was, uh, that was a station like they all used to be in the 1960s and 70s. But on a serious point, we have invested massively in our station mm. since privatisation. There's a chap I know who was a career railwayman, went to run the Irish Railways for 10 years, and when he came back, he said the thing that hit him the most was how much money had been spent on our stations. So it ain't all bad, Mike. OK. Well, listen, I'm, I'm not saying it is. Nigel, thank you very much indeed. Nigel Harris, editor of Rail Magazine. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.